God's Word says this, And as he was setting out on his journey, the he, as we define each and every week, is Jesus. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor. You will find treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, I repeated that, verse 25 now, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, there we go, and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Isn't that good news, church? Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Most of us would not define ourselves as rich materially or wealthy or probably wouldn't even define ourselves as being particularly well off. The vast majority of us would probably define ourselves as economically middle class. I think it's a safe guess or maybe even lower middle class or some of us may even say, no, pastor, I'm just poor. Okay. I'm just poor. I don't have a lot financially. And so before you, as hearing this passage, it's titled the rich young man. You say that doesn't really pertain to me. I want you to hear some statistics about uh, this great nation that we live in uh, because it is relevant to each and every one of us. I want us to rethink our economic standing on a global level, then pulling ourselves out of the United States and looking at uh, the economy from a, from a global standpoint. The average family household, looking through some statistics this week, the average family household income in the United States is somewhere in the low $60,000 range. That's the whole household coming together. Globally, this places the vast majority of Americans into, hear, the, hear this, into the top 1%, 1% of the world's richest people. The average American is in the top 1%. And even if you're House, you're like, Keith, I'm nowhere near a household income of $60,000. Anything within the United States generally is going to place you in that high percentage range as it uh, 
pertains to the rest of the world as we compare those things. To get more specific, so not only the top 1%, but that range of household income actually places you, one website said, in a group of people in the top 0.17% of the world's wealthiest people. What a blessing to be here, yes? But also, as we kind of look at our own financial picture and maybe things seem bleak, look to the rest of the world and know that we are blessed to be in this nation that we call home. So comparatively speaking, most of America is wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. I know what you may be thinking. You're like, yeah, Keith, but wealth is kind of relative to where you live. You know, if you, if you go to Mexico, you might be able to get goods and services for a, a much cheaper rate than you would here in the United States. Obviously, yes, a family household income of $60,000 in Manhattan, New York, is not going to yield you much, is it? Other than a cold spot on the concrete in the middle of winter. Whereas for comparison's sake, if you had a household income of $60,000 in the state of, let's say, Mississippi, that's not aimed at any particular group in this room right now, but Mississippi, if you read through statistically, is one of the poorest economic states in the United States. And so if you had made a living of $60,000, say in Mississippi, you're probably living pretty comfortably. It is relative. But the bottom line is this, even the lowest income earners in the United States, in this church, are in at least decent shape when compared to the rest of the world. I know uh, in my high school years, some formative years, I've shared this story before. One of the most impactful moments that I had in my walk with Christ was going on a mission trip to Mexico, to the Ensenada area of Mexico, which is in the, the Baja Peninsula, just south of, of Cal, Southern California. And I know that my biggest priority at 16 years old when I was going down to Mexico uh, was that my, I knew my parents didn't have enough money to buy me my own personal computer. And I was very upset about that. And yet when I crossed the border into Tijuana and then going down into Ensenada and I saw the military officers holding large weapons at each outpost, and I saw the poor children trying to sell gum in order to just provide for their family or begging, and we drove into the neighborhoods and the housing that the people that we were ministering to that they were living in was the equivalent of a cardboard box on top of a pallet. And then I realized how petty I had been back at home thinking that I was such a disadvantaged person to not have my own PC. In the grand scheme of things, we're wealthy. And so this passage is incredibly relevant to us. Not only from a financial standpoint, but just in general, when we compare our good work, bringing our good works to Jesus, that's what this rich man does, and also the sources of comfort that we find, we'll call those idols, things that block us from our relationship with, with God, we can relate to the rich young man. We can relate to him. We must be mindful that this passage focuses on the wealth of this man and also on his reliance, his own goodness to impress Jesus. He's almost coming to Jesus like, hey, are you not impressed with me? Look how amazing I am. 
But his good works and his wealth don't impress Jesus. They don't accomplish that. Because Jesus calls us, I want you to hear this word, we're going to repeat this phrase over and over again this morning. Jesus calls us to radically rethink, to radically rethink that which is most important. Jesus calls us to radically rethink that which is most important. It brings us to our main idea this morning. Our main idea is this. Following Jesus requires that we radically rethink our allegiance. We radically rethink our allegiance. Looking back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, and then we'll skip to verse 5. If you look to the screens, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. There's no other interpretive grid to that phrase. It's very clear. You shall have no other gods before me. Then looking at verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And it's not our human sinful jealousy. It's His righteous jealousy. He wants to be the sinner of your affection. And unfortunately for this rich young man, Jesus is not the center of his affection, but rather his seeming good works and his wealth is the center of his affection. The heart of the passage hinges on this word. It's about idolatry. The idols in your life. The man is guilty of making an idol out of his own goodness and his wealth. And likely, in this time, looking at the the context of this passage, these were one and the same. The Jews typically viewed God's blessing as a material blessing. A wealthy Jew was someone who was likely living an upright life. God rewarded him with wealth. Jesus, though God in the flesh, we believe that Jesus, that the Scripture teaches God is both a fully human and fully God. He's not 50-50. He you don't split him in half. He is both one, both of those things at the same time, fully human, fully God. So Jesus, God in the flesh, he turns this idea upside down, though, that, that the material things that we have are a sign of God's blessing. Why? How do we know this? Because Jesus, as God in the flesh, is born to a teenage, unwed, virgin... Born in a barn, basically homeless, has no place to call home. And the prophet Isaiah even gives us these details. He really wasn't much to look at. Like we see a picture of Jesus and I call it surfer Jesus because he's got like blonde flowing long hair with blue eyes. I don't know how a Middle Eastern man has blonde hair and blue eyes. He didn't look like that. And he's very handsome in these pictures But the prophet Isaiah says he wasn't much to look at. He's just a normal dude. A normal homeless dude. And here, the rich man comes to him. Jesus wasn't a picture of blessing from the Jewish viewpoint. And so this passage calls us to radically rethink the way we view things brings us to our first point. We need to radically rethink who Jesus really is. Radically rethink who Jesus really is. The passage pushes us to a decision about 
who Jesus is. Is he God or not? And if he is God, then all authority has been given to him to call us to obedience to his commands. The question is brought out right at the beginning. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, asked him, hear this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Do you think Jesus is making a statement here? Comes up to the teacher, appears to come to Jesus in humility, hurriedly kneeling at the feet of Jesus, asking his pressing question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? He calls Jesus good. Jesus in his normal approach, right? Responds to the rich man's questions with what? A question. Let's get to the heart of the matter here. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus radically shifts the conversation and causes the man to radically rethink who Jesus is. Who is this person that you are talking to? You're talking to God in the flesh. He is not merely a good teacher, although good in this culture was a much more loaded term than our nonchalant use. Like we, we call our dog in from outside. The dog comes in. We have a treat. We say, sit. And the dog sits. And what do we say? Good boy. Right? We just kind of throw good around. So not Like people come in. They ask you how you're doing. Good are you really good? My mom used to get mad at me if I said I was good. She said, no, you're well. No one's good. Why? Because we use the term just kind of nonchalantly. But here, we see that good has a weight to it. Why? Because only God is good. Only God is referred to as good. The man uses the right term. Remember, he's asking God this question, but I'm far from convinced that he believes that Jesus is God, or later in the passage, he probably would have listened to what Jesus has to say. Not to question his motives, but he appears that he's just trying to impress the good teacher that's been traveling around in order to receive the same praise back. I have a hunch that he's going to Jesus saying, Good teacher, what do you think about this guy right here? Aren't I amazing? I'm good enough, right? Everything's good? We must radically rethink our view of Jesus. And so it brings us to this question. Do we really believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do we believe he is God? And if so, should we not listen to what he tells us to do? Or are we like this man just looking for Jesus to affirm our allegiances right where we are? Many of us approach Jesus in this way. Deep down, we don't necessarily desire to be transformed by Jesus. We just want him to pat us on the back and tell us everything's fine right where you're at. You don't need to do a single thing. You're good. But the gospel radically transforms us. We're a new creation in Christ. So things must change. You can't just stay where you're at and have Jesus pat you on the back and say everything's going to be okay. 
He calls for obedience to His commands. And so deep down, church, do we desire to be transformed by the living and loving God, or do we want the pat on the back Jesus? And so Jesus challenges this man to our second point this morning. He challenges him to rethink, radically rethink, his own goodness. He challenges us to radically rethink our own goodness. I would venture to guess, probably not in this room because we preach the gospel a lot here, but many people in our culture would think that if there was a God, as they stand before God, that their good deeds, if there was a scale there and God's there in front of them, that their good deeds would be enough that they could pass into eternity. I'm good enough. But Jesus challenges us to radically rethink our own goodness. Are you good enough? This man sure thought so. Let's read. Verses 19 to 21. You know the commandments. This is Jesus speaking. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. I think this is another uh, way of saying do not covet. Uh, Honor your father and mother. And he said, so this is the, the rich young man, and he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will find treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. I want you to pull yourself away from this particular passage this morning for just the next few moments. How brilliant is the teaching of Mark and the writing of Mark here when we set this up alongside of what we learned last week? Last week we had the children coming to Jesus, right? The passage deals with the least of these, the most vulnerable, those who come to Jesus with nothing. Jesus received the children that were brought to him and he blessed them. We pictured this, if you'll remember last week, by holding out our hands. Remember that? We, we held out our empty hands, awaiting the blessing to be filled with Jesus. Here now, look at this, the, the writing here. Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we get this, this picture of children coming empty, receiving. They bring nothing to Jesus. They receive His blessing. And here we witness a man with many material blessings. He's wealthy. He's a good guy. I mean, Jesus doesn't necessarily disagree with him when he says that he's, he's fulfilled all those commands since his youth. It just says that he looked at him and loved him. So he's a good guy. He's so good that unlike the children last week, this kind of hit me that the disciples kept the kids from coming to Jesus last week, right? But here, the rich young man, he, he gets a free pass and goes right to Jesus. No one stops him. So they, the disciples obviously thought he's, he's safe, he's good. Comes to Jesus, kneels at his feet, calls him good. But this man comes, I want you to picture it this way, he comes what with his hands filled, right? His hands are filled. They're not empty. He's bringing his good works. He's leaning on his material comfort the things of this world and saying, Jesus, is this enough for me to get eternal life? Am I okay? 
comes with hands filled. And he refuses to empty them and receive the blessing of Jesus. His material comfort is too much to overcome. Jesus seems to even affirm that he's lived in light of the commandments listed. We know from the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount that he's sinned. Obviously, we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. But I think the picture here is that he is a good guy. He's one of those guys. He's just a good dude. He's good. Jesus doesn't correct him on that. Jesus loves him. But one thing stands in the way. The man believes his seemingly good life is enough. How many people do we come in contact like, I'm good enough. I don't need Jesus. Don't call me a sinner. I'm all right. I just speed every once in a while and run stop signs. It's no big deal. That wasn't a confession of myself. Notice here the commands that Jesus has given in this passage. You see, we can summarize the Ten Commandments in two categories, if we had to categorize them. Uh, We have commandments that apply, the first part of the law applies to our vertical relationship, okay? When I say vertical, I mean our our relationship with God. We saw one of those in in Exodus 20, the passage we were looking at at the beginning, you have no gods before me. So we have commandments that deal with our vertical relationship. And we have commandments that apply to what I call our horizontal relationships or those with with people. It's why Jesus says uh, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and to love others as you love yourself. We, We have a summary of the Ten Commandments right there. This man, for all intents and purposes, has treated others well. He's a blessed man by societal standards, but it's not enough. Because all of this stands in the way, his goodness and his comfort in his wealth, it stands in the way of him saying, I'm willing to lay all that down and follow you, Jesus. All of that stuff pales in comparison to a relationship with a living and loving God. His good deeds and material security will not grant him eternal life. Only obedience to the command of Jesus will. It's why Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what? To obey all that I have commanded. And if God this morning is calling you to a point of obedience to flee from something that is getting in the way of your relationship, by all means, repent of that thing and turn and flee as fast as you can. Jesus challenges this rich young man on his goodness. And also our third point, he challenges him on the source of security. He challenges him to radically rethink his source of security. He challenges us to radically rethink our source of security. Here's the bottom line. This world's a tricky place. And the adversary, Satan... He doesn't need you to to bow at his feet. He just needs to distract you enough to keep your eyes off of Jesus. He uses many tactics to deceive. Beware. Material security is one of those. Anybody felt uneasy over the last nine, ten months or however long this pandemic's been going on? Sometimes that uneasiness starts to 
speak to those things that are idols in our life that are standing in the way of our relationship with Jesus. Material security is one of those things that the adversary that Satan uses to distract us from the love of Christ. The well-off, the wealthy, the rich, most of the United States can be lulled into a sense of false security because of our stuff. Because that memory foam mattress is really comfortable at night, isn't it? While the poor also can have envious hearts towards the wealthy, desiring that same false sense of security. If only I'd win the lotto, everything would be okay. If only I lived in the house in that one neighborhood. If only I had the thoroughbred farm out in Oldham County, right? Is that where they're at? Lexington. My bad. The well-off can be lulled into a sense of false security while the poor can have envious hearts towards the wealthy and desire the security of money and material blessing over the comfort that God gives to those who place their faith and trust in Him. It's the only comfort that we have. Where is your source of security? What will you do when God calls you to radical obedience such as with this man? As we look at this next section, 22 to 27, to me, this, the first verse is one of the saddest verses of all the Bible. Jesus says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. How does the rich young man respond? Isn't it sad, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus teaches now. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Why? Well, because material blessing in Jewish culture had always been a sign that, or material wealth was a sign of God's blessing. There, what's going on here, Jesus? This guy's great. Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Think about that. That would have been the largest animal that they would have known of in that area. Think about a needle, the eye of a needle, and putting a camel through the eye of the needle. Is that possible? No. Incredibly difficult. Be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It says they weren't just amazed. Now they're exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? If the rich, good, wealthy guy can't be, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, this is good news right here. So we have one of the most sad verses at the beginning, 22 and then 27. Jesus gives us this good news. With man it's impossible, but not with God for all things what are possible with God. Remember the verse from Deuteronomy from our main point. You shall have no other gods before me. The man may have been a good guy, but hear this. He's a sinner before God. Hear this. We're all sinners before God. 
there's a danger and we'll substitute broken, we'll substitute vulnerable, we'll substitute weak. No, we are sinners before God. We have willfully disobeyed a perfect, righteous, and holy Father. We're all sinners that fall short of the righteousness of God because even our good deeds, they seem like good deeds, but they're always tainted with depraved motives, with sinful motives. And we often place our faith and trust in everything but the true source of security, which is God. We have to recognize our need for His righteousness, a righteousness of another, that we are sinful before the eyes of God. The rich young man felt no need for Jesus because his need was masked by wealth. His need was masked by him looking at his life and saying, I'm good enough. I've done all these things. But when he's confronted with God in the flesh, he says, no, thank you. I'll go my way. I'm going to do what I want to do. Sounds familiar as Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent and God gave them specific instructions to follow and they said, now nah, we know better. Is that really what he meant to say? I want to take a bite. Did Jesus really mean for me to sell everything I have and give it to the poor? And nah, I'm not. I'm done with that. I'm going to go do my thing. He felt no need for Jesus. I love this quote. Pastor David Fairchild says this, he's gonna, it's going to strike you a little bit, the words he's going to use, but it's okay. He says, when Jesus told the self-righteous, we can define this, this man as kind of a self-righteous guy. Seems like he was fairly humble in person. I mean, he came to Jesus, he kneeled before him, but he has wealth and he seems to think highly of his good deeds. So when Jesus is talking to the self-righteous, when Jesus told the self-righteous, so quote, tax collectors and hookers enter the kingdom of God before you. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to this man? Hey, the prostitutes get in before you, dude. Jesus wasn't kidding. To have Jesus and participate in his body means rejecting your moral resume and self-reliance. It's by saying, I am a sinner before a holy God. That is what we call need. Finishing the quote, Fairchild says this. I hope you track with this. He says, what you need is need. What you need before God is need. You need God and a realization that you need God. This man didn't realize that, and so he walked away disheartened because he wanted God and he wanted to keep his stuff. What you need is need. And sadly, too few want it or have it. This is the great danger of our own moral resume or our reliance on security outside of that which only Jesus gives. It's that point of need. Have you been there where you're just desperate? I need Jesus. Our only source of security is the security of salvation in the work of Jesus Christ, sinner. 
and our union that we have to His body through the power of His Holy Spirit. We have to realize our need of need. We're not good enough. We don't have comfort outside of the comfort that Christ can give being united with Jesus. Material blessing gives us a false sense of security. We take things that are actually blessings. Like being financially secure is a huge blessing. You see, we, we misuse what God's Word says about money. We'll say, oh, the love of money is the root of all evil. No, the love of money is the root of all evil. You see, money doesn't have any morals. A dollar bill doesn't have a moral compass. It's, it's amoral. Doesn't have any, but it's what we do with that thing. When we find that as our source of security, we take our eyes off of Christ. I want to illustrate it for you this way. When I'm growing up as, as a young boy, I'm going to publicly humiliate myself. I was afraid of the dark. Okay? Don't hold that against me, Jordan. I was afraid of the dark. And so at night when I would sleep in my bed, if I heard a noise in the room, I had my, my blanket on me, right? And when I heard a noise, what would I do with the blanket? Pull it over my head, okay? Now, if there's an intruder in my house and I pull my blankie over my head, how much safety does that provide me? Would we say that that's a false sense of security? That the blankie's going to save me? Although I felt really secure underneath that thing. It's like when the ostrich goes out and just buries his head in the sand. It's a false sense of security because everything's still going on around us. And oftentimes that's how we approach God with our material. We're, I got enough in the bank account. Uh, the car's running good. The house is comfortable. The bed's comfortable. I'm good enough. That false sense of security and stuff. We need security in an eternal Savior that will never let us down. He'll never forsake us. He will never leave us alone. It brings us to our last point. Radically rethink the reward of following Jesus and the reward of eternal life. Radically rethink the reward of following Jesus and the reward of eternal life. No matter what we give up here, we get Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, you get Jesus and you get him right now. And you get him for all of eternity. Isn't that good news? 28 to 31, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The disciples and all their flaws. You see, whenever Peter speaks, the, the picture in Mark is that Peter is speaking on behalf of the disciples, so we kind of think that this is running through their heads. Like, hey, Jesus, check us out. We left everything and followed you, which they did. The disciples and all their flaws are an example of what it means to follow Jesus. 
They give up everything. They leave behind everything and they walk in his footsteps. Even though in the past few weeks we go through and we kind of make fun of them a little bit because they say really dumb stuff. But they have left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus continues to minister to them in the midst of them saying and doing not the smartest things. It's a beautiful picture of the relationship we have with Jesus. This is where we have to radically rethink our source of motivation. Are we willing to give up anything and everything for Jesus because we get Him? That's the reward. We get Jesus. The disciples had Jesus with them. They also had the comfort of God's Word guiding them. Moses once told Israel, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We get the reward of Jesus, the comfort of Christ in our life. We're also motivated, and this is okay, by the reward of eternal life. Sometimes when we go through a week like we have where the news is blasting us with bad news, isn't it nice to look, take your eyes and look beyond the horizon and see the reward of what's to come? The comfort of what's to come. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Stock market will fail. Housing market will crash. Your favorite restaurant will be shut down. Economy will ebb and flow. You may lose your job. The dollar that you have in your bank account may be worth nothing because they just keep printing them off. The person you love most will eventually pass away. But Jesus will never fail you. Nor will he ever fade. Because he is the living, eternal God who laid down his life for you. But he didn't just lay it down. He took it back up again in his resurrection. We can be assured of his words because of this. We can be assured of his words because he is the only person who said, I'm going to die and then I'm going to defeat death in the grave and I will be raised to new life. And he accomplished that 2,000 years ago. We can be assured of his words because of this. That when God's word says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that he's telling you the truth that we will have a reward for being united to his body here and now. There's a great reward. He says, you're going to have houses and brothers and sisters. You get it right now. Look around the room. We have brothers and sisters right here. It's a blessing of the church. We'll have a reward for being united to his body here and now and also a reward of a glorious future in His holy and perfect presence, in our own perfect resurrected body. Doesn't that sound good? Anybody achy this morning when they got up? I ran too much yesterday in the morning and I had ice packs on both of my buttocks and my hips because they hurt. 
Give me my perfect resurrected body, please. TMI. So what happens when you have me lead worship band preach. I'm tired. <laughs> I want you to hear this, church. Take heart. God is powerful. Remember back to Mark 10, 27. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You get God, the one who can turn a heart of stone into a heart of life. His word promises this in Ephesians 2, 4-7. I love this passage. It says, but God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, hear this, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here, this is such good news. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Who cares about your riches here on earth? If you are in Christ, you are seated with him. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Church, that's good news. What an incredible promise. In Christ, you are seated with Jesus. You're not a stepkid left in the back room. You're seated with him on his throne. What an amazing reward and how laughable the foolishness of our reliance on material security here and our own good deeds. When we radically rethink our source of security and heed the command of God to rid ourselves of the idols that are hindering our relationship with Him, we get Jesus. Move the stuff out of the way and focus on the Savior, Jesus Christ. We also get the promise of eternal reward. 